Good morning. Great. So I'm Robert Bernard. I'm the Chief Environmental Strategist for Microsoft. Uh, I've been doing this role for about six years. I've been at Microsoft about 16. And for the first three or four years, we actually spent a lot of time with Kevin and the teams at BT. Our first carbon goal was a goal of basically GDP normalized reduction of about 30%, taking into account growth and all that stuff. It was actually modeled quite heavily after the BT model. And as we came up to 2012, we said, what's next? Right? And so we looked around. We thought a lot about where we thought regulations might head, where our customers were headed, most importantly, where the science was. Right? 80% reduction in carbon by 2050. That means average 80%. That means a lot of people have to get to 100% reduction. So we just jumped in and we said we're going to go to carbon neutrality. Now, there's a big difference in, in our experience between um, talking to people and saying, we have a carbon neutrality goal, will you help us? So anybody have that kind of experience in their jobs where they go to people in their own company, they talk about their environmental issues, sustainability, and you get the response, this is great, but, right? And it very much was, I felt like my job was nagging. That's kind of what I did. I went around and I asked people to do things. And a lot of people did a lot of great innovative stuff because they were super passionate and very, very bright. But we had no system. Right? We didn't have a governance model which actually drove the kind of behavior we wanted. So we sat down and we said, well, what would change that? Well, what if we put a price on carbon? And then we said, well, which carbon? Right? There's scope one, scope two, scope three. And we said, look, let's just make it very, very simple. If you get on an airplane and you travel, that's a lot of carbon. It's scope three, I guess, under CDP, but whatever, we're going to charge you for it. Electricity, we don't generate a lot of our own electricity. That's changing a bit, and I can, I'll talk a little bit about that. But a lot of scope two, right? Power that we buy from utility companies. We're a data center company, cloud company, right? We're growing very rapidly. We use a lot of electricity and power all over the world. So how do we spark the kind of innovation that we want? And we said, let's put a price on carbon and see if we can change behavior. So how do we think about the challenge broadly? I'm just going to largely skip over this. But when I think about the role of the carbon fee, it's largely in this last bucket and the first bucket, which is how do you enable energy efficiency at scale? Right? That's a real issue for us. We're in well over 100 countries. We have over a billion customers. We admit uh, last year's CDP just, just came out a little, little over a million and a half tons of carbon, not in significant numbers. And so how do we actually create this system where we're driving change at scale? So we said, let's create a framework. And this is a framework. I won't read through all of it in the interest of time. But it's basically be lean, be green, and be accountable. Now, what's great about this is there are different line items. And each line item is designed for a different area of our business based on what role you have at the company, setting targets, all these kinds of things. But it's actually really easy to remember. And that's huge in terms of communication value internally. Right, going around to people saying, be lean, be green, be accountable. People get it. They understand, great, i got to reduce my energy use. Hopefully, I can source green energy. And by the way, you are accountable. If you get on a plane, you will be charged. There's a little calculator when you reserve your airline ticket at Microsoft System. It says, how many tons of carbon? And we will charge you for that. Right, and this starts to drive a culture change. And now we're about a year in. And we're actually seeing fairly dramatic changes all over the place. You know, just this morning, I was reading that our teams in Ireland and Dublin are working with the University of Dublin to do demand-side management optimization schedules where we're trying to do computation loading when the wind is blowing because we can actually source clean energy. And the question is, how do we actually know exactly how much carbon for every transaction we do in a data center? 
That's what we're trying to figure out scientifically. So we can really get down to the point, which is, it's not just a data center running a bunch of services. It's how much does an individual transaction for an individual customer actually cost in terms of carbon? So we're working on that uh, in our Dublin data center. Hey, Brad, quick, quick question. Can you answer the question of how much the price per ton is? Uh, it's a blended rate. So if you fly, it's a different rate than if you use power. Uh, and so it moves all over the place. In fact, we were just talking in the back as, you know, how do you set that rate for, on a forward market? It's more than what you would pay if you just went, like, a low-price voluntary market. Uh, and so it's, it moves and it's blended is the best way to describe but it. the minimum is and the maximum is. So it's not a minimum max. Just to give you scale, we spent about, uh, I mean, this is all public, we spent about $10 million in the first year. We're at about a million and a half tons. So you can do the blended rate from there. Uh, so there's two different vehicles that we use. The question is, what do we do to offset it, which is a great question. So, and I'll show you some of the projects. We do a combination of offset projects, and we also do RECs. And we do RECs for our power and offsets for our travel. Any other questions? I'd much rather have you ask questions than me just go through slides. Are you working with Xbox division to develop gamification for this work within the company? So uh, Xbox, we're hoping that people will write to the platform, which is generally how it works. Uh, and so we'll see what happens there. If gamification happens or not, I think it'll be great. I thought well, the uh, Scarecrow game that, uh, that Chipotle recently came out with is really interesting and great. Let's hope it catches. I just wondered, in your position and thinking about how you price carbon going forward, have you uh, considered using a social cost of carbon? Um, and have you looked at that, and is that a factor in your analysis? So could you describe a little bit what you mean by a social cost of carbon? Well, social cost of carbon is the damage function. So right now, the, U the U.S. just raised, we just raised our social cost of carbon from roughly $21 a ton to about $38 a ton. But in other words, it says simply, if you pick a number, what is the marginal cost of each ton of carbon emitted? So in other words, rather than looking at marginal abatement cost curves or the cost of carbon in ETS in Europe or California, it says, well, how much damage does it cause? Let's quantify that. So for each ton, that's the marginal cost for a given damage function. There's 10 government agencies have signed off on our, or 11, I think, on our social cost of carbon. It's used by the EPA for cost-benefit analysis. But I just wanted going forward for corporations, I think one thing to consider is, like, those numbers are out there. What do we, what do, we do with them? I just wondered if you had a thought on it. Yeah, I think I'm not saying this yeah. is like common knowledge. And I'm no, no, no. Trying, I, I don't mean to embarrass you. No, or no, no, like no, 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 no. We have not looked at it. We just haven't. We've looked at where is the voluntary market and the involuntary markets for carbon. We've looked at the EU and, frankly, the incredibly artificially low prices. And so we've looked at all of those things and say, okay, where do we think we will actually have additionality and meaningful measurable impact? So that drives, that's basically the bottom line. And then we say, well, how much will it cost for us to actually fulfill the requirements? So we met with literally many, many of the leading NGOs around the world. And we said, before we talk about price, we want to talk about criteria. Are these the right criteria? And we sent them around, and we had meetings, and we basically got lots of endorsement after massaging it and working with them. They said, okay, here are the criteria. Great. Now, what does it cost to go source those? That was the approach that we took. So we didn't actually just, take the social. And just to motivate anyone who wants to look at social cost of carbon, if in the, at two standard deviations out, it's over $100 a ton. So if you care about, like, fat tail risk, you... You get it's, it's they're pretty big numbers. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, yeah, another question, and it's fine. I'd please, please stand up if you have a question, and if you can wait for the mic. I was wondering uh, when an employee books a flight and there's a price for carbon, if Microsoft pays that or if the employee pays it. 
Oh, the employee does not pay it. Microsoft pays it, so uh, your division would pay it for you. But it comes out of your budget. So you have a set T&E budget, travel and entertainment budget, and that's part of what you have to pay for. Um, I'm just going to hold one second and just, because um, there's been a lot of questions about the types of projects, so I'm just going to put these up here. These are some of the projects and the offsets you guys can look at while I answer questions, but these are some of the projects we've invested on in the world. Yes, please, go ahead. Uh, does the support for uh, internal price on carbon translate into any legislative positions in terms of federal price or state price on carbon? So I would say uh, have a look at our blog later today or tomorrow. I'm posting something on that. So the answer is I'll let you decide how you want to interpret it. But, yeah, we have positions absolutely, and we're actually articulating those later today. Great. So these are some of the projects that we invest in, and please, questions as we go around the world. But in general, there are lots of different criteria I talked about, but one of the critical ones is additionality. Right? There's a lot of, frankly, low-quality carbon offset projects and low-quality recs where if you're investing, it doesn't really matter. And you can actually buy those at incredibly low prices. But the general philosophy is how do we actually invest to drive change at scale? And not surprisingly, we're increasingly thinking about what's the role of technology in driving enhancement in multiple sort of triple bottom line ways. So, for example, some of our projects are looking at, we're doing a, it's actually not on this list, but we're doing some projects in Africa, which is how do you actually drive uh, distribution of systems and information flow that will improve the quality of lives? How do you actually think about investing in projects where women will actually resell products like cook stoves or water filtration systems. So you're not only eliminating wood for burning in the home and the human pollution issues, you're also helping create a more robust ecosystem. So one of the other things I would say is we're learning a lot. You know, year one, we sort of went out. We wanted to make sure the system didn't fall over. It didn't fall over. As you can imagine, executing this uh, at a company of scale over 100 countries we needed to make sure that we got it right logistically. Now that we're beyond that, we're really thinking about how do we evolve it. So I would also welcome sort of after this any questions or comments or thoughts on areas for investment. Uh, here's a, just a sort of portfolio of stuff that we're doing. So water purifications, reforestation, forest protection. The one up there on the upper right on your side is actually uh, a landfill gas to energy in Turkey. And then next to it, they've built a hothouse where they grow vegetables. Local women grow the vegetables, sell the vegetables, feeds local people, creates income. So these are kinds of products, projects that we're looking at. This is a project we're doing in the state of Wyoming, which is how do you actually power a data center, right? So now we actually are driving innovation, hopefully, internally, where there's an internal price in carbon. What if we actually had a carbon reduction strategy where we could take waste, human waste streams, and turn it into power, and then power a data center. So we're actually doing this in Wyoming with the municipality and the University of Wyoming, and we will publish all the data. It's in the process. The general contractor is in the process of building this out. These are the kinds of things that are starting to happen because people are recognizing that we have a responsibility and accountability and a cost of carbon. The next stage for us is also how do you monitor all this stuff real-time with data? So we've done a project in our corporate campus, and then we're now taking this to cities around the world. We have 115 buildings, 15 million square feet, 500 million points of data a day. And so we said, what do we do all this information? How do we reduce energy use? And back to one of the earlier speakers, it's how do you actually take super complex data and make it really, really easy? So if I said to you, you had 500 million points of data on Penn campus, and you had to figure out how to optimize energy, you go, wow, that's really, really hard, especially if you're dealing with people who are used to just dealing with mechanical systems and not computers. So 
And a different part of my job, I think a lot about how do you take natural user interface and apply it to environmental challenges? Because if these things are hard, people will not do them. People will not make decisions to change their lifestyle if it's difficult and sacrifice in general. So we have to make it very, very easy to take these massively complex problems and simplify them. So 500 million points of data. I just have one question. If you came to work in the morning and you were in building management, where would you click on this? Red box. Simple. 500 million points of data driving that one screen. Click on the red box. You're in a building. It tells you what's going on inside that building. These are all, if you were in mechanical systems, these are what are called VAV boxes. It's your air conditioning system. You look at this and you say, okay, great. I see a lot of red. I know I've got some problems. I'm going to go look at a floor. This is real data from one of our buildings our developers work in. Right? So now we've abstracted out the problem and we've driven it down to the next level. Now, this project was partly uh, inspired by the fact that we were moving towards a carbon neutrality goal as a company. So this is the kind of stuff that I think all of us, when we think about the role of carbon or offsets, it's not just about offsetting your carbon. It's about inspiring innovation at a new scale. And a lot of what I do in my job, whether it's the carbon fee or an innovation, is how do we actually change the way people operate inside a large company. So I'm just going to wrap up there. And I'm happy to answer any other questions at one of the breaks if you'd like. I'm Bruce Rao. I call myself the tree hugger engineer at Disney. Uh, I get to focus on a lot of different technologies, mostly energy-related technologies, but generally speaking, sustainability. And I've been with Disney about 11 years in a part of Disney called Imagineering. We love to make up words, right? So... Um, Imagineering is part of the parks and resorts, and they design, generally speaking, they design and build the theme parks, uh, but we do a lot of other things too, and then we continue to support those. So within that, I'm in R&D, and again, focus on uh, sustainable design. So this is, some of this is adapted from a, so a lot of internal uh, discussions I've had with people and webinars and things I've done internally, so uh, it's kind of a mishmash of things, if you don't mind. So I'm just going to try to give a, a sense of the story and the arc of, of how we've gotten to where we are today in terms of developing corporate environmental goals. And then specifically, I'll, I'll drill down and focus on uh, the direct greenhouse gases. So we've, we've kind of parsed it out in these ways. Some fantastic discussion this morning about the interrelated nature of all of these different areas. We've segmented them to give us a little bit of focus and, and to determine what targets would help us achieve these overarching long-term goals. But generally speaking, you can see that we have seven of them basically focused on uh, direct greenhouse gases, indirect greenhouse gases, waste, water, ecosystem impact, um, the footprint of the Disney consumer products that we don't necessarily manufacture, but we license, and then how can we in, kind of use the bully pulpit recognizing that we have quite a large audience, how can we inspire our guests and our customers um, and our business partners and our cast members? We, we have this whole kind of show theme at Disney. So the people who work at the park are cast members. We are offstage, onstage, all that. So I'm going to focus, again, mostly on these. Um, but you can see we have some pretty aggressive, I think, long-term goals to be net zero on direct greenhouse gases uh, we chose at the time, we were developing this in 04 and 05, that kind of time frame, to, to draw those boundaries that we um, recognize everything crosses boundaries, but we, we took into account what are we directly responsible and in full control of, 
versus what we're indirectly in control of or can influence. And then the last one, you'll often see this called our inspire goal. So first to clean up in-house and then to take that message out through various modes to whether it's a PSA or just a message at the parks or something like that. So our, our long-term goal for direct greenhouse gases was to be net zero. And for us, that meant whatever we emit, we have to offset and reduce. Uh, not to say that we uh, actually, and I'll go into this a little bit, it was not to ignore what we emit and the level. We have a lot of pressure to reduce that, but to start down that road um, to apply internal pressure by saying we are going to offset this, and there's a cost to that. So I'll go into that a little bit. And just to give a sense of scale, at the time we started this, and we released our corporate goals publicly in 2008, I think it was. We were working for, on them many years before that. At the time, we had four theme parks, um, several gates in some of those, two cruise ships, and about 270 buses at Disney World. We have a large bus fleet there that moves people between all these very spread out parks. I get lost every time I go to Orlando. But you can see that just for direct greenhouse gases, and this is only parks and resorts business, but that is the lion's share of direct greenhouse gases for the company, that cruise ships, two cruise ships, are fully half of all the direct greenhouse gases for the parks and resorts business. That means this other side are the four theme parks equal two cruise ships. That doesn't take into account the emissions from indirect. Totally recognize that. And actually, the pie for indirect is about the same size, but it's heavily, there's almost nothing, of course, on the cruise ships. So they have their own burden. But if you take cruise ships and land mobile, which would be our bus fleet, you can see you have a big chunk of where we need to focus. Well, that was in 2008. We added another cruise ship, made the pie bigger, and, of course, the slice for the cruise ship's bigger. So our challenge, my challenge, is growing, growing. And then we added another cruise ship. <laughs> like, please, just give me a stationary place to work on. No pun intended, stationary. But the pie's getting bigger, the cruise ships are, and we're adding buses because we're expanding hours at the parks. We have to move more people. So the target keeps getting bigger and bigger, and, and in that... Um, we have these goals and then our targets beneath that. So kind of to wrap our head around it, we set these intermediate targets of in 2013, we would offset 50% of our gross emissions. And for the electricity goal, we took a different tack on that and we, we set a, a target for the uh, electricity usage that we would reduce electricity at our existing assets by 10%. So it was really... Not a lot of data. Actually, we didn't have a lot of data in 2006 and 7 and 8 when we started this, so we weren't sure where we could go with this. Um, so there, we thought they were very, very aggressive goals, and I think they are. They continue to be aggressive, and we're, we're now reaching those goals. So now the next step is how will we set up uh, and focus on 2020, and we're working on that internally. Um, but as part of that, we first sought to reduce... So focus on, if you saw that pie, clearly transportation, if you call a cruise ship transportation, floating hotel, floating theme park, whatever it is, and the buses, you have a great place to focus your attention. And uh, the way this was conveyed is that uh, we took those expenses and we, well, let me say this a different way, that we were offsetting the emissions and we chose to invest directly in projects, wherever we could. If we had to make up a little bit of difference to kind of true ourselves up at the end of a year or something like that, we might buy some offsets on the market. But the lion's share was to invest in projects. And we did a lot of due diligence because at the time, we were reading articles about 
companies getting caught off guard by uh, um, unintended consequences, if you will, of some projects they were investing in, not taking into account the full life cycle of what they were doing and some of the um, non-economic impacts, uh, social impacts of the projects, too. So we wanted to make sure we really knew what we were stepping into, and we partnered with some, some great companies, Conservation International, TNC, Nature Conservancy, folks like that. But always our first goal was, was to reduce and then offset. So we created this Climate Solutions Fund to fund that. And we were sitting around, and they thought, well, where is this money going to come from? And we thought, let's make this real, and let's charge this back to each business unit according to their emissions. And so we created the internal price on carbon. There's a little bit of disconnect with it because if you know about investing in some of these projects, they don't mature in the year that you invest in them. So there's a long string of, of reductions that occur, especially in forestry projects, which we've mostly focused on. So you can't necessarily directly draw what our emissions are in one year to our spend. But we're also spending on the order, as Rob said, you know, 10 million-ish a year right now. Um, so those are our, our approaches. Um, some of the projects... I haven't been directly involved in negotiating these and investing, but uh, we have a lot of projects around the world. You can see they're heavily forestry-related. We do have some other projects on uh, landfill gas and some things like that. But we, we really love these kind of projects for the multiple benefits they have. And we follow uh, VCS, uh, yes, voluntary carbon standards, and other kind of standards. Yes, quick question. Do you want a, a mic? You know, that's, that's a really that's a good question, because how do you start that whole dialogue? And it really came from the top down. And, uh, well, we honestly, it was like four of us sitting around in a room and thought, can we really carry this off? Can we convince executives to charge this back and put it down on the bottom line of the business unit? And it really took talking to um, the CFO, because our, our corporate citizenship program goes up through the CFO, and then on up to Bob Iger, the CEO, and they... It was like a mantra. They kept saying, do the right thing, do the right thing. And so I think that committing first to investing in the carbon offset programs and incurring that cost, if you will, kind of kick-started the whole thing. So instead of instituting a price on carbon, pulling the funds out of the business unit and then having them in a pool to then spend, we went the other way and we said, we're going to spend this and then we'll allocate it back. Is that kind of, so we had total support from the CEO level on down. It was really, yeah. It's really great. There's also an interesting point. I don't know where it'll fit in here to talk about um, transparency. And, you know, we, we charge this back to at the business unit level. And then it can be difficult to translate that down from the, the president of a business unit level down to the, the manager of transportation, for example, or the facilities engineer, so that they actually, how do they know what this price impact is on a project they select or how efficiently they run their, their facility? Um, and that's it's a challenge, and we're working on pushing down that transparency. Luckily, we have, again, a lot of support from the president to the SVP level and on down saying, yes, it's not on the transportation budget per se, but we will, if they reduce emissions, we'll give them credit. So it, it works out quite well. So I actually can't speak to too many details about a lot of these projects, um, but, again, we, we partner with a lot of NGOs and work uh, diligently. We go out. In the field, we do um, what we can to walk through and understand exactly what we're getting into and work on those. So 
that's kind of the strategic, um, as Rob said, he had a, a, a quick phrasing to, to help people understand. My elevator speech, as I call it, is with, when I'm talking to executives and explaining this, I say, bottom line, burn less, burn something different, or clean it after you burn it. And focusing in that order uh, to reduce and be efficient, first of all, and then to find alternative fuels where possible that make sense. And again, I'll talk a little bit about life cycle assessment, but not much. Um, and then cleaning after burning. And, and at one point, we were looking at scrubbing CO2 out of the exhaust of our ships, for example. And we're finding, as I uh, intuitively felt, that CO2 is a really, really stable molecule. And it doesn't like to be scrubbed and split and things like that. Um, so that's, that's tough. But I also consider offsets to be that clean after burning, if you will. So I have so much here. I'm going to click really fast and say that I focused a lot. The last two and a half years, I've been kind of on a, a focused assignment to do a, a significant reduction of emissions from transportation. So that means the cruise ships. I mean, there's a lot of work being done. Our two new ships are 50% larger, but they burn about the same fuel per day on an itinerary because they're much more efficient from the whole design, coatings, route optimization, and all that. But we also are looking at other technologies on board where we can take advantage and harvest waste heat. And I clearly don't have time to go through a lot of this, but I have a nice little graphic to show people that, you know, we're burning fuel and all this heat going out the exhaust and into the water to cool the engine, and we have all these heat loads all over the ship. Now, we're not completely ignorant. We already do put an exhaust gas boiler and make steam, and we also capture some of the heat from the engine, but we're going even further to reduce that more and more. See, it doesn't sound like much, but 5% on all of the ships, if we could do 5% on the ships, that's a good chunk of a theme park. So it's a great place to focus. I won't go into that too much more. Um, the other place I'm really focused on is alternative fuels. And I'll just say that, you know, you have to be very specific to the application. The, these ships burn liquid dirt, basically. It's bunker fuel. It's, uh, you have to heat it to get it to flow. You have to filter water and sand out of it. The great thing about it, from an operations perspective, is it's available around the world. Every port you go into, you can get bunker fuel, and it's inexpensive. So to go to cleaner fuels, we're talking about a 40 50% increase in the price of fuel, which then would have to be translated into prices and everything. But we have to focus on that. We have to look at that. And what are the alternatives? When I started this, I, I said everything's on the table. Everything from, you know, people would throw out nuclear or sales or, as I call it, the spa cruise, which would be the oars, you know, kind of get your work out in while you, you know, the spa cruise sounded so much better. But really, when it comes down to it, nuclear is bad because the the emissions from the two destroyers that have to escort you everywhere are greater than what you would have done anyway. So we're looking at a lot of different things. Electricity is great. Um, we're looking at buses, but again, you have to look at the full life cycle because electricity is not emission-free often. often. Um, wind, exactly, if you can uh, do that. Uh, on the ships, we cold iron. We plug in uh, wherever we have power available at port, so we try to do that. So we have all these different options, but... For us, uh, you know, how can you reduce the greenhouse gas in the big picture? And it, of course, depends on, depends on the feedstock and the life cycle assessment. We spend a lot of time making sure we don't have, if we can avoid it, unintended consequences. That's kind of been my nightmare. Um, so I'm going to skip through a lot of this. I don't think I have to explain the different time scale of hundreds of millions of years of, uh, yeah, of pulling in uh, plant material to create oil, and now we're putting it out, back out in hundreds of years versus closing the loop on a one-year scale. And it's not a 100% reduction. You have to take into account all the energy streams 
that you put into that. So life cycle assessment, other implications on food sources or land change, land use change, um, other social impacts. We take all that into account where we can. Uh, and how to weigh all those, how to put those on the same bottom line. It's very difficult. And just an example, not to say that we have chosen this option, but we were looking at, for example, algae as a source. But really, algae itself is not the origin. In this case, you have to feed it something. So are you going to feed it sugar cane? Are you going to feed it corn? Are you going to feed it uh, cellulosic material? And take that all into account so that you get a full picture and, and uh, not, not kid yourself that you're doing 100% offset. And this is it. Is that the last one? Great. Where we're going. So we keep adding cruise ships, but we're working to bend that down. We're bending it. I wish I could show you the next couple years, but yeah, I think that's it. Oh, and then an infographic. But you can go on to our uh, Disney Environment uh, Citizenship website, and we're trying to find ways to convey that to people. Great.